Hey, Rockville. Jamie and I recently interviewed Bob Blameyer, and I thought a little bit of history might help put it into context. On February 28, 1972, Indiana Senator Birch Bayh introduced an amendment to the Higher Education Act of 1965, which was up for reauthorization. Title IX was part of the Equal Rights Act, which was coming out of committee and, as we know, on its way to nowhere. But in the spirit of what can we do, Senator Bayh tacked it on the HEA as an amendment that made our country, and arguably the world, a better place for everyone. Title IX usually brings to mind women's athletics, and while it's true that women's sports would probably not exist in any meaningful form today without Title IX, the meat of the amendment and its intention was about education. Any educational institution accepting federal money had to provide equal opportunity for women. So where does my friend Bob fit into this? Bob worked for Senator Bayh for 13 years, starting as an 18-year-old college student fresh from Indiana. He drove the senator and ran errands and eventually became his political director. He had an inside view of the creation of Title IX, the ERA, the Bayh-Dole Act that revolutionized research and development through fair patent practices, and on life and electoral politics. He's also Senator Bayh's biographer. I contacted Bob, who lived in Rockville until quite recently, to ask for a few minutes of his time to talk about Title IX in preparation for a series of interviews with women leaders. Instead of the 15-minute phone interview I initially asked him for, this incredibly busy and generous man joined us in the garage for almost two hours. I was born the day before Title IX was introduced on the Senate floor, and although I've had my fill of you're so much prettier when you smile and criticisms for returning to work after my son was born, and he's almost 21 and I'm still kind of salty about this, I know I benefited from Title IX in ways my older mentors did not when they were girls and young professionals. As someone who knew the world before and after, I asked Bob how he had benefited from Title IX. He talked about becoming a better person through shedding his prejudices, and he shares in a frank and direct way what he believed and how he behaved before and after Title IX in the civil rights movement. His candor shows that we can fix ourselves and that when we have real conversations about these issues, we can uplift others. He also lit up when his daughter-in-law and granddaughter came up and he talked about his daughter-in-law as a feminist. My initial response was, yeah, so? But in Bob's pre-Title IX life, the act of feminism was revolutionary. And the fact that he takes so much pride that she and his granddaughter can be anything they want in the world he helped Senator By create was another reminder of how far we've come and that we should take none of it for granted. The warm-up and sound check was so interesting in its own right that it was not edited out. The conversation is far-ranging, moving from Title IX to other accomplishments Bob was party to during Senator By's tenure. He also has advice for local election candidates towards the end of the interview, which might be pretty useful since the uh, Rockville City election is cranking up this spring and summer. That was kind of my thinking. Is I, I don't know a lot of the history regarding Birch Bob, but I am a big Kennedy. Well, I don't want to say Kennedy fan. I'm just very cognizant of the Kennedy brothers and the history. I just find it so fascinating, the family, uh, particularly Ted Kennedy. So i got to ask you, um, and the setup for Susan, so Ted Kennedy w was running for senator in the 60s. 
And a few months after his brother got assassinated, right, JFK, he's in a plane crash. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah, I know this story. And from his biography, I remember Birch Bai was on the plane. And if I remember correctly, Birch Bai, like, drug him out of the plane, like, saved his life. Well, you obviously haven't read my book. <laughs> no, no, I haven't. No, 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 right. It, so fast forward to the 70s. If I remember correctly, my history, Carter runs for office in 76. And I think Birch Bai ran against him in the... Democratic primaries. Mm-hmm. Carter obviously wins. And then 1980 happens, and Ted Kennedy runs the famous or infamous insurgent campaign mm-hmm. against Carter. Mm-hmm. And then it comes to an issue of who Birch Bayh is going to back in that. And I think if I, a lot of people assumed it's going to be Ted Kennedy, and he doesn't. He comes out for Carter. Mm-mm. And so he did not. Oh, he didn't. No. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I was very intimate. Yeah, yeah. So that so, you see where I'm going? I'm just, I'm just very curious. No, I'm happy to go on. Yeah. I'm happy in, whether we do it on the air or off. No, no, no. no. I, I don't think it's relevant to what we're going to talk about. Uh, but I'm just curious. Just no, for myself. First of all, story, the yeah. interesting thing that you raised that is yeah. because his pulling Ted Kennedy out of the plane crash is what got me interested in working for him when I knew I was coming to Washington. I thought, well, this is cool. I'm a big Kennedy fan. You know, John Kennedy was elected president. I was 11 years old, and he was inspirational. We went from the oldest president we'd ever had to the youngest elected president. And I just, this is what I wanted to do. So when I got into GW and came here, um, he was my attraction because of the plane crash. Mm. I was 15 at the plane crash. And a big Kennedy fan, right? So I came, went down. My first day after my parents left me off at college, I took a bus down to Capitol Hill to offer my 18 years of life experience to the junior senator from Indiana and ended up uh, you know, getting offered just a volunteer project eventually. I was able to meet him my first day, first senator I'd ever seen, much less mm-hmm. met or anything else. And uh, we had a lot of interaction with Ted Kennedy over the years. In 80, when... To, well, in 76, yes, he ran against Carter in the uh-huh. primaries and lost. Um, in 80, it was a dilemma. I was a political director of the campaign and been his political guy for the last three years in the Senate. And the, the dilemma was, I mean, he, he told, said to Ted Kennedy, you know, don't, don't listen to anybody. You decide what you need to do. And the Carter people assumed we were helping Kennedy. And the Kennedy people assumed we should be helping them. Right. And we were trying to maintain neutrality, which is you, the smartest pos, you know, position, in, particularly when you're up for re-election. Uh, and we were actually helping Kennedy on the QT. Oh. He, he one day calls me into the office, and Paul Kirk is sitting there, who, who was Kennedy's chief of staff in the Senate, was then working in the campaign, and later replaced him when Kennedy died in the Senate. And Kirk and it became DNC chair. So I got to know him, and he says to me, look, we sit down, there's the three of us, and he said, we're not going to officially do anything, but I told them that you're the resource for to know you know, where the bodies are buried and whatever they want to know in the state. So I had this private link with Paul Kirk through it while I was hearing criticisms of my Carter friends that you guys must be helping, he must be helping Kennedy, and I couldn't admit it. And the Kennedy people were, why aren't you helping Kennedy? I couldn't admit it. Because <laughs> right. we have friends in both. You know, and, and when you're when you're the statewide Democrat in a tough year, the last thing you need to do is split your base. You know, and 
and there are a lot of Carter people in Indiana, and there are a lot of Kennedy people in Indiana. So, you know, that, that's the, the accurate part of it. And I know that part of it as well as anybody because I was the guy who had to do the communications with Paul Kirk. All right. So, I was just fascinated with a little piece of history there. Yeah. You know, to me, the most fascinating things about Birch Buy, I mean, outside of my long relationship, and I have one, and the love I have for the man, there have been 11,000 attempts in our history to amend the Constitution. Right. Since the Bill of Rights, there's only been 17 successful. He has two. No one since the Founding Fathers has more than one except for him. Right. So that alone puts him in the Hall of Fame of legislators. Right. You add to it Title IX, Bayh-Dole, Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act, the D.C. subway. He, he provided the first funding for the D.C. subway. Did you think that got him any votes in Indiana? It was always about solving problems, what's the right thing to do. And, it, you know, you admired him for it. We took our lumps because he also was very pro-choice, not popular in Indiana, for gun control, not popular in Indiana. And, you know, he paid the price for all that stuff right. over time. Anyway, I can go on like that for hours, as you might imagine. Well, I think that's one of the things we've lost is that we don't understand. I, we don't. <laughs> we don't understand how what happens in Washington affects our daily lives, and I don't think I. I can't. It's hard. I think it's harder to see, and maybe it's just because we can look back and see what Senator Biden did then. Um, maybe we just don't see it in the in the moment. Um, but things like Title IX, you know, it, it, we think of that, oh, you know, that's the thing that helped women athletes. Well, it did a lot more than that. It had nothing to do with it when it was passed, nothing to do with athletics. His wife, Marvella, had always complained to him about the fact that she had tried to go to University of Virginia and had received one of these letters, women need not apply. Mm. And every time they got involved in... Uh, various women's issues and spending issues, she would say, Burge, it's just not fair. You guys give money to, to schools and let them treat women this way. So he became the, uh, the sponsor of the Equal Rights Amendment. And when that was faltering at the time, in 1972, and the educational authorization was up, he took language out of the Equal Rights Amendment, put it in his Title IX of the Educational Opportunity Act, got no attention. Nixon signed the bill, never mentioned it. But the women's activists and the women's groups that were involved in pushing for it, they knew about it, and right away lawsuits started being, started being used to file lawsuits against colleges and universities who were ignoring it. In Yale, for instance, the Yale rowing team is a great story. There's a female rowing team and a male rowing team. And the male team had their own locker room, their own showers, their own gym, and all the stuff. Women had none of that. And the women would have to basically go home, walk back to their dorms or apartments in their wet clothes, and change. And after Title IX passed and it became, they became aware of it, and things started happening, they started getting attention, the women walked into the athletic director's office one day, half of them naked, half of them with just T-shirts on, all of them in their back saying Title IX. Oh, wow. And got her attention, you might say. Yeah, I would think so. I think so. So what How? What was it, if, if athletics was not its original intent? It, was, it was about admissions, just basic equal opportunity. The idea was that there were certain schools, major schools, that would have a quota of like 5% could be women mm. or, or a limit of 5%. Um, so 
there were the incentive really never never touched on sports early, although that was one of the original early criticisms from some school presidents that uh, you're going to destroy men's sports. I remember being in a meeting with the presidents of Indiana University, Purdue, and Notre Dame, saying, Bert, you're going to destroy men's sports. And he just said, I just don't think you're right. I don't agree with you. Um, if it was really about admissions, women weren't getting into law schools or medical schools. The numbers were woefully low. And uh, it changed everything. You know, so it, it yes, in sports, it, it created sports because all of a sudden, if you're uh, taking federal money and, and you're a college or university taking federal money, you have to spend equal amounts on male programs and female programs. And it did have some negative impacts on some of the men's sports. Mm-hmm. I mean, because there's a, there's a pool of money. Right, right. It's one pot <laughs> of money. It was 100% and zero, and all of a sudden it's 50 50. So yeah. something's going to, yeah. But it has been. You know, it's one of, it was one of his greatest sources of pride before he died, was Title IX. And he got more honors and awards for Title IX. We went out, we had an incredible day, couple of days where at the 40th anniversary in 2012, I went with him to the Obama White House to be honored for the 40th anniversary of Title IX. I'm in this room, ante room, before we go out, and Billie Jean King is walking around telling everybody how he's her hero. Aww. And so I chatted with her. We talked about the Bobby Riggs match and all that. Mm-hmm. And she kept just saying, Jesus, isn't he fabulous? And so I got her contact information. And when I was writing the book, I contacted her, asked if she'd be willing to write a blurb. And she wrote the major first blurb that's used in my book. Oh, that's great. And it's talking about what an impactful piece of legislation it was. Can you talk about that match? Just give some background for people who might not know what that is. Yeah, in fact, I, I, I wish I could remember exactly what year it was. But I remember it well. I remember when it went on. Bobby Riggs had been the national champion mm-hmm. at, at some point. But he was now beyond that age-wise and started publicly saying, you know, the worst professional man could beat the best professional woman. And he was by no means the worst professional man, but he was he had retired. He, was out, he, he wasn't at the peak of his skills. And she was the best professional woman at the time. And so, you know, it got hyped up, and they and the match, the challenge was issued. She accepted it, or she challenged him, and he accepted it. I don't remember that. But it was a hugely watched televised event. I think it was in the Afterdome. Huh. And they did this, incre- in, in Houston, they did this incredible array of her coming out on a big throne with feathers around and everything. And Howard Cosell, who was doing the announcing, kept talking about her appearance. When you look uh, back at it, it yeah. was really almost offensive mm-hmm. about... You know, and she just cleaned, wiped the floor with him. It was one of the most fun things to watch. He, it was no contest. I don't remember the numbers; they're easy to find, I'm sure, on yeah. how it turned out. But it was really he. She wiped him out. Yeah, that's a good story. That's and good you story. know, it just. I have been able to meet so many women over the years whose lives were changed by this legislation. Have you ever seen Orange Is the New Black? I haven't, but I know. What you know, you're talking crazy about. eyes. The actress mm-hmm. Uzu Aduba, mm-hmm. well, she was in, my son was a, on Broadway in the play uh, Godspell with her, oh. and she was speaking a c- couple years later at a, a in an Emily's List event downtown, and I was I was at the dinner, and when it was over, I go up, I walk toward her, and she stops dead in her tracks. And she says, "Mr. Blameyer, what are you doing here?" <laughs> and I said, "You didn't know I worked in politics, did you?" She said, "I had no idea." And we're chatting. Finally, I said, I worked for the guy that wrote Title IX. She goes, 
That's how I got to college. Mm. And those things, they matter. You know? Yeah, <laughs> they do. You know, we don't think about it anymore, right? My, we don't. Which is fine. Which is good, right? <laughs> yeah. We shouldn't. It sh- we should never have had to have thought. We shouldn't have. And look, I remember early on. I mean, I had the I had the benefit of there were so many professional women around our office that I got slapped on every time I said a piggish thing or, you know, a chauvinistic thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up as a male in Indiana, and you know, I was as. And seriously, I mean, they, I got knocked around verbally mostly by by the women in the office. He, he appointed the first female chief justice of a Senate subcommittee. He did the Equal Rights Amendment, did Title IX. In 1978, uh, a woman named Gerber sued General Electric, her employer, for failure to give her health benefits when she was pregnant. And she challenged it. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the court ruled that General Electric was within their rights because health benefits are designed for involuntary illness and pregnancy is voluntary. And Birch Bay wrote the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978, which is the law of the land to this day, mm-hmm. that says, that in effect, that since only women can be pregnant, denying them benefits is discriminatory under the Civil Rights Act. And you know who helped him write that? Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Aww. She was a female activist at the time, was hanging... And all these women would be in our offices. Mm-hmm. You know, Gloria Steinem, Bella Abzug, Ellie Smeal, you know, Betty Friedan. I mean, my goodness. You got to know who's, who these women were all there all the time. And I don't remember Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but I, the staffer person and the former staff person that wrote that is the one who told me that, and I put it in the book. Yeah. So, Susan, are you going to edit this or do you want to start? I think we just keep going. Okay. Yeah, great. we just keep going. We're off so to you, a great start. So you know, you look at you look at that. It changed the landscape for women for admissions into colleges and universities, and the numbers of women that became uh, law students and medical students skyrocketed. The amount of women. when it passed, there were a quarter million women and girls involved in high school or collegiate sports. Quarter million, and it was like in ten years, it was three million. Something like that. I, and the numbers are in my book. I haven't memorized them, but I wrote them, cited them. Huge increases. And like I said, it, it, it was the right thing to do. It shouldn't have been revolutionary. If you would listen to the arguments that were being made against the civil rights, the Equal Rights Amendment, for instance, senators were arguing this means we're going to have unibat, unisex bathrooms and all the fear mongering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. One, of, one senator, Sam Irvin, Big Watergate champion, totally opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment, and he was doing the what we called. He was introducing what we called the potty amendments. Oh, it was to Brent because he kept saying that, that we're going to have unisex bathrooms, oh. and and as, as you know, it's a, it was, had nothing to do with it. It was about simply equal opportunity under the law. It never said you had to be the same and everything. Equal opportunity under the law. It's a right. simple structure. So I'm the same age as Title IX. Is so that right? I don't You're know. You're born in 72? I was born in 72. So I... You're a real child. <laughs> so I was I, working there at the time. I know. I know. So I, I wish I could say that I have not experienced any kind of bias or any kind of prejudice. I still get told, oh, you're so much prettier when you smile. You know, exactly. I mean, all that kind of thing. It so still goes I've never out. had anybody, maybe I'm just not good looking, but nobody's ever comes in to me and says, you look handsome today. <laughs> right, yeah. right. No one comments on your appearance. That's right. And uh, one of the, I have the privilege of at least being an informal leader in Rockville yes. as a woman. 
our mayor and council is majority woman. Uh, women are well represented all over town. This is, I don't really, coming from Comal County, Texas, I know that it's not like this everywhere. This is yeah, nice. Maryland, Maryland's unique in that respect. Right. This is right? a nice little, bowl of little bubble we have here. But I don't know what it's like to universally live in a world where I couldn't apply to college or couldn't expect to get in anywhere, you know, given my... given my Saudi Arabia, you can't drive. Right. Well, I mean, in, in the United States, <laughs> yes. in, the, in my world, in the United States, I can't, um, you know, I just, when I applied for colleges, I just applied where I was interested in going to and where I thought my background, like my, my GPA would get me in, my test scores would get me in. It never crossed my mind. I can't apply there because they don't accept women or I can't apply there because only 5% of women would get in and my GPA is pretty good, but not that good. So talk about... You know, there were women who couldn't buy property. Right. I had, without a husband's signature. I had an older friend in the League of Women Voters in Comal County who had moved from the Northeast to Texas when Texas still required women's husbands. A man had to sign for your car for you. That's right. Yeah. So I, I've heard those stories. And not to be ageist, but you've lived in both worlds, right? You lived mm-hmm. in the before and you lived in the after. How... How is your life different? How is it better for men that women do have the opportunity in most places in the United States well, if, to if we, lead with them? If we believe philosophically that we don't want discrimination to be part of our mindset or our behavior, whether it's racial discrimination, age discrimination, sex discrimination, if we don't want it, it was a big step for pushing that out of our consciousness. Much, you know, I really think one of the beauties of the, today. And there are not too many good things you could talk about the way things exist today. People, it is easier for people to be who they want to be than it was when I grew up. Nobody ever talked to my sister about a professional life and anything. Women were, for instance, I, I never learned how to type because only the girls took typing in high school because they're the ones who are going to be secretaries, not the guys. No guy's going to be a secretary. Right, we're going to do professional things. It was just—it was kind of these assumptions that were built into our psyche about somehow there, and and you and you can't say you can't deny that it means superior or inferior to men were can you know superior just like whites over blacks. I mean, it's it's wrong to be to have that as part of your mindset, and yet that's really kind of the way things were. And so I think things like Title IX, I think the Equal Rights Amendment, for instance changed the mentality in the country without passing. And uh, and uh, people I talked to when I was doing interviews for the book were saying the same thing. The country changed during the debate because of the debate. Mm-hmm. Because because uh, it's pure logic. Don't you want, do you want your daughter right. to have the same opportunities as that guy's son? Of course you do. Right. And yet it was no, undeniable that they didn't have him. I mean, Marvel... When I do the Marvella Bai, Birch's wife, who died in 1979, and she was the first public breast cancer mm. patient because he was running for president to run against Nixon in 72 when she got breast cancer. In fact, I took her to the hospital when she was diagnosed and ended up being a Paul Vanderar funeral. Wow. Uh, she was incredibly ambitious, incredibly articulate and smart and, and pretty. But... Many of the people I interviewed early on who'd been involved in the 62 campaign when he first won said it had been a different era. 
she very well likely would have been the candidate, not him. Hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. because she, she was a hard charger. She was, like I said, very articulate. And in many ways, she felt stifled as the country was changing. And again, this whole debate on equal rights and Title IX and everything where she all of a sudden, she didn't want to be Mrs. Birch by. She wanted to be Marvella by. Yeah. And when she finally got a job uh, as a national spokesman for the American Cancer Society after she had gone through this this public mastectomy and and re- recovery at the time, it was it, for both of them. It was a great thing. I mean, uh, I, he kept saying it for the first time. She's not Mrs. Birch by. Oh. She's Marvella by. You know. You know. So, has it changed my life? I think it's made me a better, more tolerant person. I had look. I, I grew up in an era where using the N and in an area where the using the N word was not unusual, mm-hmm. and I freely admit that I used it as a kid, and I came to understand how bad it was and how bad the, the thinking behind it was. Uh, I think actually I'm probably in a better position to not be racist because I was racist. We have to fix ourselves. Yes, right. Other people can't fix. And us. it's not just theoretical. Ourselves. Because right. I can re- I can remember holding my breath around black people, not to breathe in the germs that were obviously obviously had to be emanating from these non-white people, right? And I'm ashamed of those thoughts and everything. But they, but I I understand now better where it comes from, because of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I've often said to my sons, you know, I've never had a conversation with you about how you need to talk to police if you're stopped for speeding what you shouldn't shouldn't say but every black man i know has had that conversation with his sons right i've never had to talk to my son about being careful when you go out for a run exactly you never know? never had that jamie is the father of a daughter I there think you, are. you and i have sons but jamie's got a daughter right i now have a granddaughter oh you have a granddaughter oh wonderful and her mother's a feminist in fact my daughter-in-law anna thinks that the last state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment in 1977 was Indiana, mm-hmm. and I ran that campaign. She considers that my greatest claim to fame. <laughs> so while we've referenced your book, do you want to tell us the title and just kind of a summary yeah, well, of what it's about and what motivated you to write it? Well, yeah, let, let me start from the yeah, latter yeah. on what motivated me. Um, well, clearly he had a, an amazing impact on my life. You know, once I got my foot in the door, I joked that I've never left. I, I, that's where I wanted to be. I didn't want to be in college. I didn't. I wanted to be there and rise up. And I had his the good fortune in ni- my sophomore year, after the first semester of sophomore year, which was 1968. He gets reelected. Uh, you may not be aware the the guy he beat then was William Ruckelshaus, who became one of the victims in the Saturday Night Massacre by Nixon. And he later became the, fr- and he was also the first director of the EPA. Hmm. Very substantial guy. But My goodness. The first guy by beat was an 18-year Republican incumbent, the man John Kennedy hated the most among his colleagues, Homer Capehart. Six years later, William Ruckelshaus. Six years later, Richard Luger, who later became a distinguished senator. Mm-hmm. And then the, the weakest of the four candidates he ran against was the last one, Dan Quayle. <laughs> and we lost to him. Um, I've heard a funny story about your son when he was small and you drove past the Naval <laughs> Observatory. Yeah. Our mutual friend Dick was telling this story last night that you drove your son we past. Called him an asshole or something? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's where that son of a bitch lives. What was he, like oh, seven? I, or Dick, yeah, Dick said yeah, he was I mean, very small. 
Uh, you know, Dick Dick elaborates sometimes. So, yeah. <laughs> well, so so I, I get this phone call from his secretary on whether I'd be interested in arranging my class schedule for the second semester around picking him up in the morning and taking home at night, and I can keep his car. Now think about what a no-brainer of a question that is, right? I'm 19 years old. All I want to do is be with this guy, and I'm going to be with him every morning, every evening, and I get to keep his car. And so we developed this relationship in the process of it. And Evan, his son, you know, who later became governor and senator, I used to babysit for him. And our connection was sports mostly. You know, he I'm into baseball. Birch had tried out for the major leagues twice. Evan wanted to learn to be a pitcher. I worked with him. And so it became almost like a familial type of relationship, personal. It later became professional as I grew up in the office and, and you know, moved up the ladder. And so I got all this opportunity. I, I, I was enormously lucky to get all this opportunity for him and, and, and did all right with it. And so after we lost, he and I just remained, remained our friendship. He got remarried. Marvella died the year before we lost. He got married the year after, as did I. And uh, I stood up for him at his wedding. Um, and this, you know, what happened was about 20 years ago, he and his wife were over for dinner. And right after they leave, my, my wife shuts the door and says, turns around and says, Kitty, Birch's wife, asked if you'd ever thought about writing his biography. Well, I, I had my own company. I was in, in, in campaign work, doing campaign work, and it was more than full time. And I called my brother-in-law, who had written a number of books, and I recounted that conversation. He said, if you're going to keep your day job, there's no way you can write a biography. <laughs> and I thought about it. So that that's right. Now, even though, I, and I've never written a book also, which is, so that's a, that's an intimidating obstacle sitting there. So I called him and I said, you know, that it, I, we'd been thinking about that and I didn't think I could do it. He says, oh, I don't want you to do it. I'm going to do it. Now he said, oh, I, at this point, he's been out of office more than 20 years. I said, no, nah, nah, I don't think you are. He goes, oh, no, no, I'm talking to people that are telling me about software where I could talk to a computer. And when we left the office, we all gave him our best memories. We wrote them up, and he had accumulated those. Yes. And I said, yeah, Senator, I, I don't think you are. And so then I decided to start, try to teach him, introduce him to people that had written biographies. Maybe someone would write. And a guy named Ted Widmer, who's a substantial biographer, and it had helped Clinton with his memoirs. We got, got hooked up with him, and the three of us go to lunch. And, and Widmer tells me before, before the lunch, he says, there's no way I can do this. I, I have a contract to write a biography of Martin Van Buren, but I'd like to meet him. <laughs> and so the three of us have lunch, and as I've often described it, Ted fell in love. He is now all over me. This has to happen. This has to happen. And you, you'd liked him. I mean, Bert Bay was a really likable, personable, likable guy. And... Uh, so somewhere around that period, we were, my son Nick and I were with Birch and Christopher, his son, at some event in the Eastern Shore. And I said to him, you know what, you know what, Senator, the, big, the best thing I've ever done in my life, I interviewed my parents on videotape over a period of seven years. I have seven hours of videotapes, my parents telling their life story in detail, each of our births and events of our childhood. I have three siblings. I said, and now my dad's gone and they're priceless. How about if I do that with you? And he stood there for the longest time and looked at me and says, I'd be willing to do that. 
And so in 2012, we started, we launched this process of video interviews. He was living in Easton, Maryland. I would go out there. I would send him an email first of like, here's what I want to talk about. And he took them very seriously. I give him credit. He, he would say, is this shirt okay? And where do you want, where do you want me to sit? And, and it's pretty amateur. So I have my tripod. I put my video camera, turn it on and have my notes and outline. We ended up doing 12 sessions, 30 hours of video interviews. And I continued the video interviews with other senators, congressmen, former staff people, politicos from Indiana and around the country, a couple of senators, Richard Luger as well. And uh, in the middle of that process, I got the contract to write the book. And one of the things he used to always say was, uh, you know, I got in this business to make a difference. And we used on one of our last campaign posters, one man can make a difference, was the expression. And so I told him my intention was to, to call this thing uh, Making a Difference, The Life of Birch Bay. The publisher ended up objecting because they said there are 200 books that start with Making a Difference. And, and with search engines and everything these days, they said, no, you want to be have his name up front. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's birched by making a difference. But he, he liked that idea a lot of using that. And he was able to read the first draft of the book before, before he died. He died four years ago last week. Oh, and uh, ironically, his uh, memorial service they held for him at the Indiana State House was just by happenstance, my publication date. Oh. And that's something. Wow, that is something. Yeah. That definitely is. So that's why I did it. I... I I was I was intimidated about the prospect of not having written. I didn't know if I was good a good enough writer to do it. I knew I had the material. I knew I had the history. I'm a big reader of biographies, presidential biographies particularly. But I didn't know, you know. And so there are a number of things I think I did well that I'm happy about. I I don't, for instance, I don't know these days how you write a biography without Google. I just, <laughs> and you know, Google wouldn't exist without. Birch Bayh. I was going to ask you about that <laughs> next, actually. Um, that's a good story, also. The Bayh-Dole legislation. Yeah, that's the next thing on my list. Are you guys familiar with Bayh-Dole? I'm in prepar- preparation for this. I read into it. Well, the way it passed is just one of these great political stories, a story that would not happen today end of the current right. Senate environment. In 1979... The year before we lost, um, Marvella by, you know, developed, well, she developed cancer. It came back in early 78. So the first time it was 71, she had a mastectomy. He got, he dropped out of the presidential race. And then as he's running for reelection in 1980, uh, in early 78, it comes back and it's terminal. And she was adamant that only, that she didn't want it public. She didn't want to go through that again. Uh, so I was one of like four people in our office that were told. And it was probably, I was probably put in as bad a position as anybody because I had to represent him in Indiana. I could never pe- tell people why he wasn't coming out. And people, the speculation is he doesn't want to be reelected. He's not working at it. He's not coming out. And we couldn't tell people why. Um, well, and she died in, in 19, April 79. And they had been looking through this process while she was, after it came back to find, they heard about certain treatments. And they were, they were looking into them and found out they weren't available in this country because of 
various patent rules that were standing in the way of their, their being marketed. Some countries abroad were had them. But not, and he had a meeting around the same period with some professors from Purdue who were arguing that they had helped develop some invention at Purdue and they couldn't market it because the government was had all these obstacles. The, th the basic premise was that the government was saying, if we have a nickel in it, we have the first rights to bring it to market. But it meant, in effect, things weren't being brought to market. And this country that had invented so many great things and, and led the industrial world in new innovations, we were actually falling behind several other industrialized nations in new, new inventions. And because of these interlocking com competitive and inconsistent patent rules set up over the years of various laws, and this was to simplify it and simply say, Colleges and universities and small businesses, if they even if they take federal money, they have the right to bring it to market first. The government assumes certain rights, and in particularly if it's like a national defense thing, but nonetheless, it was just giving it back. Russell Long was the Senate chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Huey Long's son, one of the more powerful senators in the years that Birch served. And they got along great, but Russell Long called it the worst piece of legislation ever written. <laughs> and he, he, he killed it. Carter was against it, too. Hyman Rickover, who had been car head of the, the nuclear Navy, and Carter had served under him in the Navy, Rickover was against it. And therefore, Carter was against it. And so it got, it got killed. And Bertram Dole had you know, gotten together on this thing, and it was written. It was called the Bayh-Dole Act, and it didn't pass. So we proceeded to lose the election in 1980. And after you lose the election, you know, there's two months, you're still in office before we leave. A period of my life I'll never forget. And uh, there had not been a budget passed. And so there was a lame duck session of Congress called. And here, 12 Democratic senators had lost. There's going to be a new majority in January. Carter had lost. And Birch gets a call from Russell Long. And he says, Birch, I'm really sorry about your election. We're going to miss you here. I've enjoyed working with you. That patent bill of yours and Bob Dole's, it's yours. He gave it to him as a parting gift. Wow. And it passed as a result on the last, it was signed by Carter on the last day of eligibility. Oh, wow. And it has meant more than 2,000 new, by 2015, the numbers are, are cited in my book, more than 2,000 companies inventions, in vitro devices, environmental devices. And one of the companies that got created under the new rules at Stanford University was Google, which is pretty, pretty huge. Yeah. There was one great, there's so many great stories connected to it. There was a guy who had developed for the EPA a process to develop unhealthy, unhealthy levels of oxygen in water. The logical thing for the EPA. But under Bayh-Dole, he was able to take that and market it, bring it, to get, get people to support it. And it's now used in hospitals around the country to develop unhealthy levels of oxygen in uterus. Oh, my goodness. It has saved the lives of how many, who knows how many children. Yeah. Well, you know from living in Rockville for a while that a lot of our economic viability is based on biotech. Absolutely. And patents. And so it's interesting. What do you, without Bi-Dole, I wonder what Rockville would be like. It, it's hard. It's hard to know because hard, yeah. again, depends where the federal funding is. Mm. If if they're doing it without federal funding, it's it, by dole is irrelevant. Um, 
And, but a lot of companies, you know, would, would, would apply for federal grants, not an unusual process, and, of course, universities and colleges. You know how I learned about it? And this was long after the Senate. Um, I was on vacation with my wife and kids and my brother-in-law and sister-in-law and niece and my sister-in-law, who is now a, a, a federal judge appointed by Obama on the Second Circuit. At the time, we're all drinking, having a good time. And, and you know, I've, I'm intimate with these people, know them quite well, obviously. And she turns to me at dinner and she said, Bobby, have I ever told you why Birch Buy is important to me? <laughs> I said, what? I mean, she, they met him a million times. And she says, oh, it's because of that Bayh-Dole legislation. <laughs> and I remember, I was involved in politics in the last few years, not legislation. Right. I said, what are you talking about? And she said she was the deputy general counsel at the time of Yale. And she said 90% of her time was wrapped up in new developments that Yale was profiting mightily from. It was generating millions of dollars from Yale University because of inventions that had been developed in port, apart from Yale and students and professors, and because of Idol, they could bring him to market. And I said to her, "You'd be better off telling him this than me." I mean, I like hearing these, but so the next time they were in town, we had the buys over, and we the six of us had dinner, and that's when he told the Russell Long story mm. about about being a party gift, and we were all sitting there going, "Wow!" And now, of course, you look at the the, the era we're in now. Can you imagine that happening? No, I don't. And yeah. being voted on bipartisanly, also, you know. Right, that's an important yeah. point. I mean, when you think of the constitutional amendments, for instance, can you tell me anything that would pass as a constitutional amendment today? Anything. No. Motherhood and apple pie right. wouldn't. You know right. what I mean? Right. Yeah, it's frustrating. Since we keep this kind of a neighborhood uh, podcast, a question I have is: you moving out here from Indiana? Right, living in D.C. What made you eventually settle in this area, Rockville, Montgomery County? Oh, um, well, uh, you know, I, I came out for college originally, and then I had the job with, with Birch. And and uh, when we lost in 1980, my desire to go back among the people who had fired us was, was pretty low. <laughs> and the woman that I had met that I would would marry, was she had no desire to go to Indiana. And I'd say I developed a... A, th- a thinking that I I've, I still have that it w- was very inconsistent with my upbringing. I was going to want to be president of the United States. I wanted to change the world and do all these great things. I had the good fortune of singing up close at a very young age. And why did I get so close to Evan By? His dad was never around. My father was always around. And I intended to have kids, and I liked the second model better than the first model. And I really started thinking... If I pursue a political career, I'm going to say to my family, this comes first. I can't do it. Yeah. And I don't want a merit badge for that. Just It was a very simple attitude that I want to be there. My kids are going to be young enough for a very brief period of time, as you know. You want to be there. And so I made a conscious decision. I'm not going to run for political office. I love this area. I had no desire to go back. I, I once quipped when somebody asked me, in the late 70s, if I would consider running for mayor of my hometown of Hammond, Indiana, and they said, well, the only problem with that is I might win. <laughs> I didn't want to go back. No desire to go back. And so I stayed. So why did I end up in Rockville? Well, my wife and I split up in 2017, and we had a house in Bethesda. Loved the area. 
I play softball near the Woodacre School to this day, right near the, where my kids went, right near my house. Had to sell the house because she had rights to half of it. And I, I opened up the process looking for apartments. First of all, it's, it's amazing how much you don't remember <laughs> things I did wrong in the search. Mm-hmm. But I looked in Arlington, Alexandria, D.C., Gaithersburg, you know, Bethesda. And I the first one I walked into at, that I had a wow moment was the residence at Congressional Village, which is down by Congressional Plaza. Really just physically attractive, only four stories high. I like the idea of not being in a high rise at the time. I could walk to the subway, which I could never do from my house. Mm-hmm. You know, Twinbrook Subway, I can almost see it from my apartment. All these restaurants and everything were nearby. And I found Rockville becoming such a more appealing place than it had been earlier when my, when my kids were little. In fact, when we used to have to I take them somewhere on a Saturday in Rockville, I said, the new capital punishment ought to be making someone drive on Rockville Pike all day long in the rain on a Saturday. You know, it was like the most miserable experience. And another cool thing about Rockville was that my oldest son, the one who, who's been, been in Broadway shows, and he, he wrote a show that went to Broadway when he was 23. Mm-hmm. And he's still in, the, in that business. So is his wife. He uh, joined something called the Musical Theater Center in Rockville when he was 14. It changed his life. And he, all of a sudden, he was around kids just like him. This is where he learned how to sing and dance and write music he did and performed. He'd always performed. But all of a sudden, he was performing in a new genre of musical theater, not just theater. And it, it just changed his life in such a radical way. A great program. And of his three best friends in the program, guys and him, four, they've, all made, they've all made it to Broadway. That's fantastic. Yeah, and one of the, I remember his friend Ryan's been in five shows on Broadway. His friend Brian Spatolnik has been in one for like in Chicago in Broadway for like fifteen years. Oh. And Nick has been in two shows on Broadway. My son and and wrote one that went to Broadway. Yeah. So this pro, a Rockville Maryland program, pretty yeah. cool, right? There's something in the water. <laughs> it's now been changed. It's now called Young Americans, I think, or um, the Singing Sensation. They've had different names. Younger people have the different name than the older kids, but and I don't attend like I used to. I, you know, sure. but it was what a program. And again, so I got to know Rockville better simply because he was had to be brought up here all the time, and he was not driving yet. So. Yeah. So you've recently moved. I recently moved to be closer to my girlfriend. Right. What do you miss about Rockville? You. Oh, thanks, Bob. <laughs> I've only been gone six weeks, so I can't tell you yeah. that, that I have any any missing pangs from Rockville. I, you know, I, where I am now, I can also walk to the subway. Oh, good. And that was a nice, it was a nice consideration because I got, really enjoyed being able to walk to Twinbrook. You know, yeah. I go to I go to Nationals games a lot, for instance. I'd much rather take the subway sure. to Nationals games than drive. Did Did you have a favorite place to eat when you were living in Congressional? I like the the. Um, well, I'm zooming. What's the cafe right near you? The Mosaic yeah. Cafe, mm-hmm. which was right near my apartment. I like that a lot. I like the Greek place, um, Mykonos, which is across yeah. across the other side of the congressional, uh, uh, you know, the mall. There are a lot of good places to eat around there. Um, yeah, I like Matchbox. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm easy, but it was it was all of a sudden to be able to walk so easily to a variety of places to eat, which again, you live in a house in Bethesda, you can't do that. Right, right. That is a really cool thing. It about is cool. Rockville. And yeah. I and I found coming to the downtown section, particularly when Dick comes in, in mm-hmm. and we go to rest. I love some of the restaurants around here. It, it, yeah. Yeah. The Irish one we went to not too long ago had a great meal. Finnegan's Wake. Yeah. So can I ask an inside baseball question? And we can obviously you can ask any we, question. We, you we want can to. edit this, right? <laughs> so obviously, book based Birch by you mentioned. I thought you, you weren't talking baseball. No, <laughs> you babysat Evan by. Uh-huh. So let me ask you about because you probably have inside knowledge on this. The 2008, right? People who listen may not be aware. I remember because I was not a fan of some of the folks running for office. And there was an individual who had been governor and senator of Indiana named Evan by that a lot of people were like, oh man, you know, let's keep an eye on him in the Democratic primary. And a lot of people were talking about him. And if memory serves me correctly, he never actually launched a campaign. He looked into it and it was curious. He, he did more than look into it. Right. Like he, maybe he, set up an exploratory committee. He had staff. Okay. He had yeah. a staff in the headquarters. But he never actually launched. I don't believe so. Right. And so I'm just curious if you may have inside baseball because a lot of people were surprised because, you know, you know, in today's time, probably it's always been this way. Even if you know you're going to lose in a primary, you still might run <laughs> because you may get offered a cabinet position. And so I was curious, and you know, this is 2008, so it's right after the Bush administration. A lot of people said, hey, a Democrat's obviously going to win this election. So if you're going to run, this is a good one to run in. And obviously at the time, there was a gentleman named Barack Obama who ended up winning. Well, before Hillary Obama Clinton, got yeah. in, Evan was, was doing it. I remember meeting with him in his Senate hideaway office and telling him my thoughts about what he needed to do. Um, I think he was a bit conflicted because of his relationship with the Clintons, because Hillary was clearly out there up early, and it was right. very obvious that she was running. Um, and he was very close to the Clintons from the time he was governor and when he got here. And But he was running, and there were a lot of people running, as you know. And then when Obama got in, he said it kind of took the oxygen out of the room. And all of a sudden, he was one of the white guys in suits, and he had well, a woman over here, a black man over here, and the rest of us white guys. And he just found palpable change in the way he was being received and the crowds he could generate, and it was like, and the money you can raise. You know, it affects that right away. The magic of Obama was, was you know, evident pretty early. Right. And you know, it didn't turn off everybody to run, right? Because obviously Joe Biden ran. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, right? He ended up being VP. And a lot of people who've read tea leaves think that if Evan Bayh would have run, he may have been in contention for VP more so than Biden. And so... I, I thought he was in contention. I think that... I think Evan thought he was in I don't know that for sure, but right. I, I remember sensing some disappointment I don't I can't I can't say that for sure Sure. and he and I were not in touch a lot during that period of time sure Um, we've been in touch actually more in the last year than we have been a long time for a long time before that you know he lost his wife two years ago and that's led to a lot of conversation and about and the Birch by book and you know a lot of stuff he just reread his mother's biography we just talked about that about a week ago her autobiography I should say I think he had a shot. The, one of the problems is that, you know, it, it, there are a number of calculations that go into it. I think Clinton choosing Gore was really one of the, a breath of fresh air because he chose somebody simply out of compatibility. It had nothing to do with electoral strength. 
But if you look at electoral strength, there was no way Evan was going to bring Indiana into the presidential column. Yeah. And that was when Birch faced the same thing in 76 when we kept, everybody kept telling us he was under consideration for vice president for Carter. I never thought he would get it. I, was, I felt like a lone wolf in the office because it's not going to happen. First of all, Carter showed that he really didn't have a lot of affection for people that ran against him. And secondly, Birch couldn't bring Indiana. Um, how much of a calculation? That depends on the, can, the, the environment, the year, the candidate. You know, it's always a complicated question. Uh, and the chemistry. I think that Obama felt good about Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden was an enthusiastic, likable guy. I've had the good fortune to spend substantial time with him. Are you familiar with his, with his recent chief of staff, Ron Klain? Yeah. Yes. You know, Ron was my intern. Oh, in wow. The office. He's from wow. Indianapolis. He started when he was 17. Wow. He was at my wedding. I mean, he's we've been buds for a long time now. Yeah. And in touch still. Yeah. Uh, but he, you know, he, he was chief of staff of Al Gore as vice president. He did the recount in Florida for Gore. And it was depicted in a movie where Kevin Spacey played him. Oh, wow. Yeah, cool stuff. Yeah. You know, Biden's a likable guy. And Biden is incredibly substantial when it comes to issues and and policy. And I think that mattered to Obama. I would say that Evan's reputation was not that as much. Evan clearly is is an appealing, attractive guy, very good speaker and and so on. Had the family, had twin boys, a beautiful wife. I mean, a lot of good stuff. Um, and I don't know what all went into Obama's thinking, but maybe he he had been more of a contender had he stayed in. To your point, I don't know. Right. But I remember when he, he kind of concluded he had to get out. So, so let me ask you this: based on your, your time in the Senate during that time period, there's when you read history, they make it seem that this '50s, '60s through most of the '80s, it, while there was a lot of battles between the Republicans and the Democrats. That at the end of the day, folks would have a drink and be able to to commiserate and cut deals behind, you know, in the cloakroom and behind closed room doors. That's not the sense we get now. And this oh, podcast really? is based. You noticed on, <laughs> you know, being neighborly with with each other and everyone. The question I have of folks who lived through that time period of the '70s and '80s is: Do you envision any chance that we go back to that? You know, I've. I've been asked that a number of times. I've pondered it a number of times. Part of me thinks maybe it has to get worse before it starts, like the pendulum, to come back. It's a man-made problem that can be solved by, by men and women. Um, the lack of civility, there are a lot of things that impact it. Uh, there are very systemic things that impact it. The amount of money in campaign in politics these days, it's, it's a, that's a toxic issue. It shouldn't. You know, the founding fathers would roll over in their grave if they realized how how much every incumbent member of Congress has to raise every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, just to stay there. Uh, you know, it's the Electoral College. I mean, Birch Bayh's biggest disappointment in his career was his failure to pass the direct election amendment to get rid of the Electoral College. It got, he got it farther than it ever got, but it was killed by our allies. Mm. In, in the Senate, people wanted to protect their turf and their, their roles, but... It was a different era. Um, the hit politics that developed, really it started just prior to the time we lost. The, the single-issue groups and the explosion of money for single-issue politics, whether it was the 
abortion or gun control, the Panama Canal or whatever the issues were, it changed the, the level of civility in politics. Um, it, clearly, yeah, I, I'll, I'll give you an example that really resonated with me was that in Nixon's first year and a half, year and a quarter in office, he had two nominees for the Supreme Court that were defeated by the Senate. Never happened before since, two in a row. Birch led the opposition to both. It's what it gave him a national reputation at the time. For me, it was one of the most exciting periods of my life because I had, that's when I was driving around and doing, and I'm a 19, 20 year old kid. So it was pretty awesome. Um, the first one, Clement Hainsworth of South Carolina, his chief Senate sponsor was Marlo Cook, Senator from Kentucky, Republican Senator from Kentucky. And when the vote takes place, Hainsworth's defeated. By is walking off the floor, and Marlo Cook comes over, puts his arm around him, and says, Birch, let's find something you can, I can work on. And they did. His staff guy was Mitch McConnell. Mm. So, you know, it, somebody said that, you know, the apple can fall far from the tree. <laughs> you know, it's, it's why the, he, he didn't adopt the same mentality that his boss had about part. You know, I... I often talk would talk to Burke, particularly in our interviews, about how did he account for the success with the Southern Democrats, that the the barons in the Senate at the time, and he said, you know, he thought it just went a lot of it went back to his father taught him to be respectful of elder people, elder men. Uh, you know, James Eastland of Tennessee, are you familiar with Eastland? Eastland was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee from Mississippi. He probably would have been a slaveholder had he been allowed. He was a very conservative, dominant senator, cigar smoking, old boy. He was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and Birch was on the Judiciary Committee. And right after uh, he'd been a senator for basically about a year, in 1963, only part of the year, um, Estes Kefauver of Tennessee dies. And he had been the chairman of the Senate Subcommittee on Constitutional Amendments. So, Birch is aware that, or at least made aware that, he's the only member of the committee who doesn't have a subcommittee. So, he needs to go to Eastland and ask for it. And right away, he hears that Eastland's plan is to cut back and cut, get rid of the committee because they hadn't been doing anything um, to save money. And so, Birch calls and asks if he can go see him. And it's great. I, the, the details I picked up on it in an interview with our former administrative assistant about that night he said when he came birch comes back from the office he said it was the only time first time before or since that i've ever seen him inebriated <laughs> he comes back i said well did you get the subcommittee he goes nope <laughs> and the next morning eastland calls him after having plied him with chevis regal all evening in his office the next morning he calls him says birch says jim eastland I think you'd make a splendid chairman of the subcommittee in constitutional amendments. And he hangs up. End of conversation. Mm. And it changed his life, and it changed our world. Yeah. Because of the civility between two very different, generationally, philosophically, geographically, men. Mm. And he got along in ways with men like that, that a lot of members didn't. But it, it led to effectiveness. So if you go there to be effective, then you want to get along. 
with your colleagues. It doesn't matter whether you disagree with them. If you, you have to accept the, the old adage that today's adversary is tomorrow's ally and vice versa. And that's what I think was a really dominant philosophy at the time. Flash forward to 2000, was it 2010 when Luger is running for re-election and Richard Murdoch is running against him. And, you know, Murdoch talked about not wanting to get along with any of the Democrats. And Luger and Bai became friends. Here they are, Democrat Republic from Indiana, who had run against each other in 1974. They they're end up both on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and they become friends. Yeah. And it, that's the way it should be. We had, this story may or may not be true, but I've heard it and I like it, so I'll tell it. <laughs> Which is when... Uh, Oh, what was the senator from Pennsylvania? Uh, Rick Santorum. You know, the story I just told you about Eastland and Bayh and everything else, how important that was. Um, Rick Santorum gets elected to the Senate, 2006, ends up on the floor of the Senate, and Joe Biden greets him and says, Rick, congratulations on your election. I'm looking forward to working with you. And Santorum says, I don't know why we're not going to get along on anything. Hmm. So there was like a, a real sea change in mentality. Uh, do you want to make points or do you want to make laws? Do you want to make, you know? We yeah, and to your point, it's on, I would say it's not only on one side of the aisle. It seems to be on both. Oh. Because in 2008, when that administration came in, they were very clear in their no new friends internally, right? It's in the country at large. I mean, right. think about how we react to people now that we that oppose us, I mean, anti-Trumpers versus Trumpers. I couldn't stand Richard Nixon, but I never hated his supporters. Never felt that way. I felt they were wrong. Right. Right. But I, I feel almost a real distaste for somebody. I don't know how you guys are politically, but I, I'm, I'm real anti-Trump. And, and I've, I don't like that feeling. I mean, it shouldn't exist. And yet if I think these things through and I feel that way, I know a lot of people feel that way. And it shouldn't be. But do you think it might be more than the individuals? And one reason I was a big supporter of the current president is I thought, hey, he was around in the 70s and 80s, and he cut a lot of deals, and he knows he did. the way politics should be. But there may be bigger forces at play here where he can't. Well, he has to deal with people right. that don't share that mentality. Right. Uh, yeah, but he's been pretty effective. Right. Yeah, no, I agree. And it's yeah. because, I believe you're on the right point. It's because of that. Right. That he, he's been effective. Um, will we return to it? I don't know. It, I worry about it. You know, it is. Um, it, it's so hard when everything you say could be recorded or tweeted out or taken and taken out of context. And we had the, you know, someone ask if, you know, I work for a nonprofit or mutual friend Dick. That's how we, Max, Dick and I work for the same nonprofit. Um, but they want to record meetings. And I'm like, really, y'all? You want to record meetings? I don't think you want that. I don't think you want that at all. But you're so right. It, it's you've got to think. You have to frame everything through the lens that this is going out on social media. Someone. I, I've will often asked a question. Yeah. Is anyone writing a, a new chapter to profiles and courage these days? <laughs> you know, because of that, it, it right? adds to caution when you got to worry about anything you say. Everything you do, you got to deal with Twitter and Facebook and, you know, and it, and things change so fast, which is also, I think, part of this whole 
me, pardon me, That's mess right. of problems yeah. that we face. I mean, in, 19, in 2008, Facebook and YouTube were huge. They didn't exist in 2004. In 2012, everybody had an iPhone. 2008, nobody had an iPhone. Yeah. That's how fast it changed. I mean, I had a company that dealt with creative voter lists and politics, built the first Maryland voter file that I'm aware of, a computerized voter file for candidates. And my biggest challenge was keeping up with the change in technology. And it's, it is hard. Uh, I think that there's a lot of things that have happened in our site. The 24-hour news cycle, I think, has been bad for our sense of political comedy and getting along. Um, the social media has clearly been an issue. The iPhone has clearly done right. something. Where, again, think of George Allen, the senator, George Allen, how he had that statement it destroyed him. One statement, Romney's statement about okay. the 40%, right? Binders full of women. That I mean, too. It's terrible. <laughs> yeah, and even I think, you know, I still get up and I read the paper. I read it on my phone, but I get up and I read a couple like of papers. like your generation. Yeah. I read a couple of papers every morning, and I find that the most sensational, the, the lead's buried, right? The most important part of what they're trying to convey is buried below the, what's sensational and, and divisive. I don't think that's new. All right. Well, I mean, we used to talk a lot about how people would say, oh, I have nothing. I watch the news. There's nothing but bad news. We'd say, you know what? It's not much of a story to say, Jamie and Susan have been getting along great these days. Okay. Right. Who cares about that? If Susan just hit Jamie with a frying pan, that's news. <laughs> but couldn't you say <laughs> Susan and Jamie are now getting along after Susan hit him with a frying pan? I mean, you can, you, there's sure ways you... to report. There are ways to write where the most important thing is the first thing. And, mm -hmm. and the sensational details, the, the, you know, the down and dirty details follow. Yeah, there, yes, had, yes. Yeah, there's but, choices. But, but when you think about what, the, what we faced, and largely because of social media, I mean, the advent of uh, fake news, the fact that this is the first time we've had a, a we didn't have a peaceful transition of power, you know, a staple in our in our system, a requirement to make our keep our system operating as it has, and, we, and that has now changed forever. Will it change every election? Maybe not, but it. We can never say we've always had a peaceful transition to power because we didn't have one this time. There, yeah. and, the, and I think that was really, I'm sorry, but I think that was really, so many people work downtown. So many people, like Jamie and my husband Dave were, um, you guys were downtown during COVID. You were downtown during some important times in our history. And, you know, to go downtown and see the chain, you know, the barbed wire around... Oh. Right. The park and all that. Jamie can. Jamie actually oh, lived it. He can speak better than I you can. You know, having that. worked there, I got, it was, to me it was so tragic to see that and to watch January 6th, period. Right. So do you think one of the issues, at least on the Hill, is the fact that folks, as a kid, I remember listening to the news and people complaining about pork, right, and bills. And now that I'm older, I realize, oh, actually, that may have been good. <laughs> Because that's how you cut. That's how you negotiate. Hey, yeah, I'll support you there if we pay for this in this district. Mm -hmm. And now that you know they don't do that as often or can't, is that maybe one of the biggest? I think that? you make a good point. It is. I think the fact that the Senate has allowed to, this evolution away from 
the majority, 51 vote majority toward a 60 vote majority. No reason for it, no change in the rules. But it used to be that if you wanted to filibuster, you had to filibuster. Right. Now a threat of a filibuster means you have to have 60 votes to pass something. It's crazy. Founding fathers didn't intend it to be a three-fifths vote or, you know, to, to pass. They intended to have majority votes. There are so many things. The Electoral College is so misinterpreted. Uh, the Second Amendment drives me nuts, the way people interpret the second, this interpretation of the Second Amendment because of uh, Scalia. Yeah. But, you know, and, and obviously people can argue, but I think it's very clear when you read the Second Amendment and anything written about it in the Federalist Papers, it was about a militia. States were worried about we're creating the strong central government. Is it going to override our role as states over our our citizens? The way we we want to make sure we can always have our militia to protect ourselves from this potentially dangerous central government. And it says a well-regulated militia is allowed. And in the jargon of the times, the references to the people always meant the states. So when they say the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, I look at that as an unfortunate choice of words. Because the reality is, at the time it was written, no one was worried about private ownership of guns. Everybody owned guns in the 18th century. Well, I mean, just grammatically, people is a group, right? It doesn't say that each person has. It's not person, it's And I believe in everything you read about it, it was not meant to say that. Right. And yet... The originalist Scalia yeah. decided that those words mean individual rights. And now it's become a mantra for so much of the of, of the, the country, really, that believes that we have to protect our right to own handguns. It, I mean, it's nuts to me. We, you know, we, we, we can regulate. We, we got rid of the Thompson submachine gun during the Roaring Twenties. You can't buy a bazooka. You can't buy a nuclear weapon. When the fact is, your choice of arms should be regulated by the government, but it's become such a toxic issue, and a lot of it is because of the money in politics, the hit nature of uh, single-issue politics, it has changed the playing field. So, you know, you want people that are willing to go out there, take their licks, get defeated if necessary, and if you elect people that just want to stay there, want to make a lifelong career, We'll continue to get what we want. Redistricting. When you have 90% of the Congress is not competitive, that's, 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 wrong. that's crazy. Yeah. That does not help a vibrant political system to build that in. But when you like, say, say a congressional race costs a million dollars, and most of them cost more. But let's say it costs a million dollars. Just do the math. 730 days in a term. Divide that into a million. That's how much they have to raise every day for their entire career. Nobody should have to do that. No. So let me ask you this. Now, since we've just talked about the money part, it's election year in Rockville. City Council, we've added two seats. So now there are going to be seven seats. I now vote in Chevy Chase. I know you do. <laughs> I know. Friendship Heights. Oh, okay. Well, I love Friendship Heights. It's yeah. nice area. So what advice do you have for potential candidates? People are starting to, to you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I will, maybe I won't. If they've got limited resources, what's the most effective way to use those resources? Well, first of all, everybody has limited resources. It's very unusual in local politics to have somebody with unlimited resources. Unless you're really wealthy. Let's just say extra limited. Extra limited. (laughs) I'm a Democrat. I'm used to extra limited resources. Yeah, extra limited. First of all, I'm a strong believer in uh, targeting. 
in delivering your message, delivering messages effectively to the right people. Uh, no campaign should be talking to 100% of the voters when you know that I'm mean, theoretically 35% are not listening to you ever. 35% are with you regardless of what you do. So you have that other 30% in there that you got to identify and communicate and find out what they're interested in. But what's important locally is as a, a voter who votes in local elections, you ask yourself, what is important to me here locally? I mean, I, I mass transit, environment. I like, even though I, my kids are raised, I want to have good schools around. I like to see teachers treated better than they are. Um, size of classroom matters to me. These are things, so you want to, I think the idea is just to target right and deliver accurate information. Um, not waste your money. Don't buy Emory boards and, you know, the different things that people buy that they waste their money on. Um, campaigning's hard. And the hard thing about local politics is that you're in competition with the higher races often. Um, yeah. And, you know, are you in, in 2023? Maybe not. Maybe it's the only game in town. So your, your task in, in 2023 is to get the people who are going to vote for you if they vote to vote um you know that's the, that's the biggest to me that's one of the biggest challenges of local politics in it in a, an election stands alone that isn't part of a, a national election is to get people out get people motivated on an issue if i come to you and i start to argue with you about social security you don't care you're not old enough yet to care a lot about Social Security. You may care. I'm getting kind of close. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I'm saying is yeah. that you find out what, you try to talk to people about what matters to them. And I'm not saying you say one thing to one person and something to somebody else. You say different things, to, but not conflicting, but different things based on what people care about. If you have, you have a, how old is your daughter? Seven. You care about the public school system, right? right? These things matter to you. I remember when I first moved into Bethesda, we had across the street, these three sisters lived alone in their 70s, which ran out, now I no longer think is old, and their elderly 90-something sister. All they cared about was crime. They had 14 locks on their doors, it felt like when I went over there. What did we care about? We were starting a family. We cared about being near the public schools, have high-quality public schools in Montgomery County, which was an overriding incentive for us to move there from the district. We didn't want to have kids raised in the district. I had bars in my windows. I didn't want kids raised with bars on their windows. So safety, environment, education, these matter. Well, if you're somebody's talking to you about something else that you don't care about, you're less likely to vote. But if somebody res says something to you that resonates on the issue because they've looked at your demographic and said, this is what he probably cares about, you're more likely to vote and vote right. That's really what I was doing for the last 35 years since we lost the election. It was, it was building voter lists and helping people use voter data to target accurate, accurately and deliver messages that are relevant. Right. I mean, how do you persuade somebody? If I'm going to persuade you to do anything, I have to talk to you in a way that makes you interested in what I have to say and responsive to what I have to say. If, I start to, if you hate sports and I start talking to you about sports, I've lost you, right? Yeah. So you, you have to make judgments as a candidate about you know what you want to do, hopefully, in the legislature, in the, in the city council, in the town council, whatever you're running for. You, you ought to know what you want to do. There are people who run for office just to be something, and there are people who run for office to do something. 
I obviously wish everybody was the latter. But you, any candidate, theoretically, should know what they want to do. And they want to be able to use that as the sort of the overarching theme that allows them to communicate with voters. But in those communications, you need to use what is relevant to them to get them to pay attention to what you want to do. Um, I don't think it's brain surgery, but there are a lot of competing interests. How do you campaign? How do you get your message out? Uh, is it is TV relevant? Is it direct mail? Is it door-to-door? Is it phones? I mean, there's all this competing. I have a whole presentation I do in the area of big data and politics that I've been doing for years because that's what I did. That's my company that I own. Um, and, you know, you think, you look back in history, originally it was just the town square, and then it became the newspapers, and then eventually radio, and eventually television, and then we go to the internet and email and Twitter and Facebook and all the things that are out there now, it's gotten harder. There's more competition for your dollars as a candidate. There's more competition for your attention as a voter. It's harder. It really is harder. So therefore, it argues more for doing good targeting and making sure you're addressing the people that are most likely going to vote for you and making sure they vote. And is that a volunteer getting, calling them and telling, call, bugging them until they say, I voted? I don't know. I mean, right. that's essentially what I, I believe strongly about in campaigning. And that's what I've been doing for the last four decades. So definitely invest your time and what money you have into taking a close look at the voters. Absolutely. Yeah. There are people who like to see, like to do television. The problem in television is there's, so, first of all, particularly now, when I grew up, there are three, three stations. I mean, now that, that choices, you know, as you know, are enormous. Right. As well as, you're not going to catch me, for instance, in a television ad, unless it's on the news or, or a live sporting event. Because I'm watching, otherwise, I'm watching stuff I'm streaming, I'm watch, watching mm-hmm. cable, I'm zipping through ads. <laughs> You know, so I'm I'm a hard one to catch, and I don't think I'm that atypical. So TV is a hard medium. It's increasingly hard, and it's very expensive, and it's wasteful in local elections because you're obviously talking to a larger geography right. than your district. Right. So that argues for direct voter contact. Um, how you incorporate social media, in person. There's no, you can't substitute for in person. Mm-mm. Pressing the flesh, um, meeting people in, in person and being there and being, uh, you know, an appealing candidate. Uh, there is a lot. I mean, I, there, this is a long conversation, obviously, to go through what somebody do, should, should do in a campaign. That's essentially what I've been doing for most of my life. It, yeah. it, it, I remember I remember we decided on a targeting system for our 80 campaign called Claritas. Claritas was a demographic system for putting everybody in the country into a cluster, identifying them based on where they lived, and put them in a cluster. They had a description like pools and patios, hard scrabble, different demographics under the thesis that birds of a feather flock together and people who tend to live near each other tend to take on a lot of the same characteristics, not yet necessarily political views, but character demographic characteristics. And then you use those to, to basically formulate your communications. And I became convinced this was the way to do it, and I think this is one of the reasons we ran so far ahead of the ticket in 80, even though we lost, because the rest of the ticket got blown away. Right. Um, but I remember going to Birch to say, 
what I'd learned and what I was convinced we needed to do, to do. And he says, why would we do that? I'm going to talk to everybody. I said, no, you're not. <laughs> he says, I don't want to leave any stone unturned. I said, yes, I do. <laughs> I said, there's five, three million voters out of there. You can't talk to everybody. And we're, we're not going to have the money to talk to everybody. we got to talk to what is, you might describe the fair-minded, the people that are willing to give you a shot. And the people that are with us, we just got to make sure they vote. But there's a lot of people out there we don't want to be spending money on communicating with. And his, that sort of run the wrong way because I'm a candidate. I represent all the people. Well, bull. You're a candidate for office. You want to win. And so, yeah, you want to target. You want to talk to the people that are going to vote for you and convince them. People who are, There are people who are going to vote no matter what. They're a high priority because they're going to vote either for you or against you. They're going to vote. Then there are the people who are with you if they vote, which means you've got to make sure they vote. I mean, it's look, I love campaigns, okay? I, I, it's in my blood. I've been doing it a long time, and I believe strongly about direct personal communication in campaigns. And in the local level, it is more important, far more important than it is in the presidential level or senatorial level. Yeah, and there's that conflict between politics and governance, right? You've got to do politics to get to do the governance. Yep, so. and the pe- oftentimes the people that would be the le- the best possible governors or senators or presidents are not necessarily good candidates. Right. Hill, I think Hillary Clinton's a perfect example. Mm-hmm. I always felt she'd be a fabulous president, but knew I felt in my heart of hearts she was not going to be a good candidate. Yeah. And now people could disagree with that, but Mario Cuomo, I thought, would have been a great office holder. He didn't want to be a candidate. That was what it boiled down to. He decided he didn't want to make the run. I think he wanted to be president if someone could have appointed him president. What's the name of the book one more time? Yeah. yeah. The, Birch, the book is called Birch by Making a Difference. Uh, it talks about a lot about all the, you know, the, the career, the, the Title IX, Bayh-Dole legislation, a lot of things he did, and uh, Senator for 18 years. You know, we, don't, we often don't know senators. We don't remember them if they don't become nominees to the party. I'll bet you if I named for you guys the senators that he was in office with, you'd only recognize a couple of names. Because um, we, we forget them. And, I, and that perspective was important to me, to realize that people don't necessarily know him, but history is not just the story of kings and emperors and presidents. It's all the component parts. So much more than And that. I convinced yeah. myself that this was he represented enough component parts to make it a story worth telling always so great to talk to you <laughs> thank it you was Susan. wonderful next time dick's in town we'll go get peruvian oh, food good and, and yeah. seriously if, if you when we do any more you want to talk on the phone or i can help or some supplement this in any way just just say so oh we definitely I'm, will we'll i'm pretty available i'm going to going to italy and croatia in may but Oh, good for you. Outside of that, I'm pretty available. And you're a Dole fellow. Are you still doing that? I'm not. I you're did, not. You're it, done. It was, okay. a, it was the spring semester of 2022. Okay. Great fun. All right. I was in Lawrence, Kansas, nine out of ten weeks. Oh, my gosh. Every week for, except for spring break. Yeah. But And I was there when they went, you know, they won the whole thing, the NCAA. Yeah, yeah. And I went to one of their games. I and mean, oh, it was like exciting. really fun coincidence to do it then. But you can see those by the way, if you're ever interested, online. They're okay. all, all available on YouTube. Okay. We'll take a look. Thanks so much, Bob. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Enjoyed it.